Christmas, we're going through uh, a topical series. Normally, we preach uh, straight the way through whole chunks of the Bible, but uh, for August, we've taken questions from the congregation, and we're spending some time with those. Uh, my sermon today is on the subject of, should we care for the earth? We might call it ecology, and what should we think about that? But let's begin uh, by reading the Lord's Word. If you'll turn to Leviticus 26, I'm not going to read the whole chapter because it's very long, but I'm going to pick out some relevant sections. Leviticus 26, starting at verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land security, securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. Jumping to verse 14. But if you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And jumping to verse 31. And I will lay your cities waste, and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I, I will not smell your pleasing aromas, and I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be desolation, and your city shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate, while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to understand what your word has to say to us about topics that can be complicated and difficult, uh, especially how to interact with the environment and how to care for your world. We pray that you give us wisdom, help us to understand your word here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me start by telling you a story about our national bird. Not the turkey, as Ben Franklin might have wanted, but the bald eagle. Uh, the original design of the great seal of the United States says that the escutcheon is born on the breast of an American eagle without any other supporters to denote the United States of America ought to rely on their own virtue. I won't comment on that motto, but it's obvious that part of the attraction of the bald eagle was its majestic, solitary nature. It's estimated that at the time that great seal was put together, the population of bald eagles may have been around 400,000. And yet, by the 1950s, that number had dropped to less than 1,000. Why? Partially because there was this slanderous rumor that bald eagles might try to snatch small children, and so they were overhunted. But also, as it turns out, because of DDT, a popular and very effective insecticide. That chemical had been working its way up the food chain, 
And in high concentrations in the eggs of eagles and birds of prey, it thinned the shell so that their offspring didn't have much of a chance of hatching alive. But with legal protections on eagles and legal restrictions placed on DDT, by the 1980s, the population of bald eagles had bounced back to around 100,000. Uh, in 2007, the bald eagle was actually removed from the endangered species list entirely. Why do I mention that? That story shows the dramatic effects that our actions can have on the world around us. Um, I think, uh, let, me, let me go ahead and read the question that was sent in for the sermon today. Many people are exceedingly worried about the health of Earth because of pollution of air, soil and water, greenhouse gases, genetically modified foods, etc. We are supposed to be good caretakers of Earth, but Christians are not supposed to be anxious. What do we believe about God that informs our understanding about our home on Earth so that we live by faith? There's a lot there, isn't there? A lot that's very relevant to questions that we have. I'm not going to answer every single part of that question. For instance, although I have lots of opinions about genetically modified organisms, I'm not going to share any of those. Um, it's clearly a very complicated area. What I want to do today is start talking about some of the biblical themes that help us to address it. And I do want, to want you to walk out of here at the end of the day understanding that if we don't care about nature, we don't care about the environment around us, then our heart is not in line with God. So I hope we at least see that clearly from God's word, even as complicated as these issues can sometimes be. We're going to look at three points today. First, God values his creation. God values his creation. Second point, the Sabbath principle means that we need to moderate our use of resources. We need to moderate our use of resources. Third point, the whole earth is included in God's redemptive plan. The whole earth is included in God's redemptive plan. And that last point is there especially because I just don't want to tell a story today just about how our actions can affect the earth and the pragmatic effects that can have on us important as that is, I want to tell a bigger story about how God has committed to renewing all things. So that's where we're going to end. So first point, God values his creation. In Genesis 1, we see God call everything that he has made good. Even the whole thing is very good at the end. If we flip over to Psalm 104, we learn about God's providential care for all of creation, how he makes the trees grow, how he gives food and drink to the animals. The psalm depicts God as imminently present in and with his creation. Every animal lives by the presence of God's spirit with them and dies when God turns his face away from them. God is the primary caretaker of his own creation, according to Psalm 104. And yet, Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that he delegates some of these tasks to human beings as kings and queens that work under him. In Genesis 1.28, he tells humans to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and all the animals which tread upon the earth. We flip over to Genesis 2.15. God says he's put humanity in the Garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. These two commissions of Genesis 1 and 2 need to be taken together. 
The first speaks of humans taking an active role, directing and guiding nature. But the second uses priestly language, uh, which evokes the special care needed to care for a sacred place. At the end of the book of Job, a great source of uh, talk about animals in the Bible, God goes through several of his favorite creatures and the marvelous and sublime way that he's made them, which is beyond human understanding. This even includes wild and ferocious creatures culminating in the terrifying behemoth and leviathan. Some of the old creation science books I had when I was a kid and liked to read about dinosaurs claimed that these were dinosaurs. Um, but I think it's better to see them as creatures of, of mythic proportions that symbolize everything wild and terrifying in nature. After all, Leviathan does have multiple heads and breathe fire. Kids, do you know of any dinosaur that has multiple heads and breathes fire? No, that's what I thought when I was a kid too. So I think that these are, are, are sort of mythic symbolic animals. But in any case, the passage clarifies that, you know, just because God has put humans in charge, that doesn't mean all of creation is simply tame and benevolent, easy to manipulate by humans. The whole point of these chapters in Job is that there are forces of nature in which, of which humans are not in control, and that they can never hope to control. And the passage says that these creatures are literally impossible for a human being to master. But for God, these terrifying creatures are actually like little pets. Psalm 104 actually says that God created Leviathan to play in the ocean. It sounds kind of like God thinks Leviathan is cute. Uh, and, and anyways, the Bible doesn't give us any purpose for his creation other than being really cool. It might be easy to miss this sort of monstrous and wild dimension of creation if you only look at Genesis 1, but if you look more closely, it's actually there too. Genesis 1.21 explicitly mentions that God creates the monsters, the sea creatures in the sea. Presumably, this is why the verb subdue is used in humanity's commission. Ruling over the earth is going to involve taming wild forces. And given the monsters mentioned in Job, humans are not going to be able to accomplish this vocation alone. They're going to have to do it in cooperation with God and in dependence on his power. Of course, if you know the story, you know it didn't go that way. Humans didn't simply rise to the occasion of the calling God had given them. Instead, our first parents rebelled and were cast out of the garden. And in the curse on Adam, the earth itself is cursed. And we heard the reading from Romans 8 earlier talking about how all creation is subjected to futility and is groaning along with human beings. So from everything we've just said, we can start by seeing three errors that in our understanding of our relation to creation. The first error would focus solely on control of nature. It exaggerates our power and sees nature simply as something to scientifically and technologically manipulate for our benefit. Sadly, some Christians, many in fact over the years, have separated the subdue and rule commands from what the Bible has to say about the intrinsic value of creation and our responsibilities to it. And too often, humans have also approached nature with a sort of hubris about our abilities, which then get disastrously humbled as we're reminded how powerful nature is 
and how weak we really are. So that's the first error, approaching nature as something simply to control. But there's a second error out there, too, which sees humans as simply a plague on the earth. All of the earth's problems are caused by us, and science only separates us from nature. We need to get rid of our science and return to monkey or something like that. Nature is then viewed as this beautiful ecological harmony, maybe even as divine as Gaia or Mother Earth. Our interventions are just doomed to disturb this beautiful harmony, and the best thing we can do is just sort of erase our influence on nature as much as possible, maybe even plan our own extinction. A little reflection makes it clear that, that nature on its own, though, is anything but harmonious. It's full of death and violence and catastrophes. As we saw, God created it with monsters and wildness built in. And humans actually have a calling from God to bring balance to it in any way that they can. There's a third error I want to address out there as well, which teaches that our actions in nature, whether they're good or bad, have no real significance and don't make a difference. One theologian, evangelical theologian, who I will leave nameless, shared the following quote about climate change. It does not seem likely to me that God would set up the world to work in such a way that human beings would eventually destroy the earth by doing such ordinary and morally good and necessary things as breathing, building a fire to cook or keep warm, burning fuel to travel, or using energy for a refrigerator to preserve food. What do you think about that quote? Leaving aside the science of it for now, it's clear to me that the theology is all wrong. Ruling over and caring for creation is humanity's main calling from God in Genesis 1. And that means when we get it wrong, there can be consequences for the whole earth. What we do with and to the earth matters. So that's our first point. Creation has value. Our second point, the Sabbath principle, means we need to moderate our use of the earth's resources. In the fourth of the Ten Commandments, God commands us to rest one day in seven. And part of what that means is that we limit our busyness with economic affairs and profit-seeking, creating space for dedicated time with God and acts of mercy to others. Uh, the fourth commandment also forbids us to require work from our children, economic subordinates, and even from animals. As a side note, I won't go too far into, but I'll just mention, yes, we do have obligations to animals in the Bible. They're not just machines we can use. Don't muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Even the ox, you have to pay them if they work. You have to give them the grain to eat. Not only are we not to labor according to the Sabbath principle, but we're not to require other people's labor on that day either. Already, we might notice a tension between the law of God and our modern capitalist societies, where our whole idea of society is that labor is organized through corporations, and what do corporations do? They seek to maximize profits. On the individual level, we have grindset, the ideal of implementing that perfect routine that will allow us to squeeze maximum productivity from our bodies and from our minds. If we do see a value to rest, it's usually this sort of grudging acknowledgement that some level of rest might be necessary so that we can then go and be more productive again. And nothing beyond that. 
To put it simply, by and large, we are workaholics. And so the strict limits on work in the Bible are going to seem countercultural to us. We can't fathom that instead of being all that we can be, God wants us to be approximately six-sevenths of all that we can be. That's about 86%. In academic terms, not even an A. So the biblical Sabbath principle contradicts the profit-maximizing principle. While laziness is bad, and there's a lot we could say about that, and we are to work diligently for six days, on the seventh we must rest. And this applies not just to ourselves, but to the economic relationships we have with other humans and even to animals. But beyond this, it actually extends to our relationship with the earth itself. And for where we're going in the rest of this sermon, I want you to know one thing about Hebrew, which is that the word for earth and the word for land are the same word. And that's often significant. When we're talking about how Israel relates to the land, we're seeing in a microcosm how we relate to the earth. Consider Exodus 23, verses 10 through 11. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. So notice that here the Sabbath principle is applied to agricultural production. The field has to be left to lie fallow in the seventh year. Agricultural production should not be maximized. This allows the land itself to rest so that it won't be too intensively farmed. And it also provides space for the poor and animals to forage. And these themes return in the passage I just read from Leviticus 26. This passage contains a grand list of all the covenant blessings for obedience and all the curses for disobedience. There's really a lot there. I don't know if we were preaching through Leviticus. There'd be a lot to cover if I was preaching the whole chapter, so maybe it's good that we're doing a topical sermon here. Um, I just singled out the agricultural elements. Obedience to God is going to bring abundant harvests, safety from wild animal attacks, whereas disobedience will bring the opposite. In other words, human sin leads to disruption in the environment. Now, some interpreters, in their haste to find ecology in the Bible, might jump to it right here. When we see the Bible, say, talk about people defiling the land, or talking about the destroyers of the earth, isn't this talking about humans dumping pollutants into the environment and then reaping the consequences when the environment no longer provides for them? The problem, of course, is that in the Bible, any kind of sin can lead to these environmental consequences. That includes worshiping idols, could be sexual sin, could be oppressing the poor. We just preached through Elijah recently. The drought in Elijah's day was not caused by CO2 emissions. It was caused by the worship of Baal. And it's precisely because that the environment is not under the control of humans, but rather of God, that this is a fitting punishment. It's, it's something only the true God could do. But having said all of that, this passage in Leviticus 26 is important because it makes clear that while Israel has a long list of sins, sins against the environment are included in that list. Just reading from verse 31 again, I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries, and I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I myself will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. 
I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land shall be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath all the time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. And by the way, um, in Chronicles we find the clarification that this is why the exile is 70 years long, because they've missed 70 sabbatical years, which works out to about 490 years, by the way. So it seems like they uh, disobeyed this command more than obeying it in Israel's history. Um, And the result of this disobedience is that the land being laid waste is actually going to be good for the land. I mean, it's bad for humans, right? Cities are laid waste, everything's, but it's good for the land. Um, It will have an opportunity to rest. As a side note, I think sometimes we have a little bit of too human-centered view of God. Because this is a theme that comes back. I'm working in the later chapters of Isaiah right now. And then again and again, we hear of Jerusalem destroyed, which is sad, but it specifically mentions that God uses it as a home for the birds and invites them to come live there. So we shouldn't just assume that God always is only acting in human interests. There are other parts of nature that he sometimes, in punishing humans, helps those parts of nature. So why does all this matter. Well, it means if we go back to our list of Israel's sins, idolatry, sexuality, the oppression of the poor, we have to add to it sins against the land or earth. And that means that environmentalist interpreters are actually correct when they say that the covenant curses came upon Israel because of their sins against the earth. Now, we shouldn't limit it to that, but we also can't exclude that sin either. And we shouldn't try to dodge the application to ourselves either. The profit-maximizing exploitation of the earth is displeasing to God. Maybe you might object to this point. Weren't these laws just for Old Testament Israel? Does this really apply to us now? Maybe it just applies to their special relationship with God. Now that Jesus has come, aren't they just gone? Well, Westminster Confession 19.4 says about the law given to Israel. To them also as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any further now, other now, further than the general equity thereof may require. But that part about general equity at the end is important. It means that while the specifics of the national government of Israel don't apply to us, the general principles very much do. And I thought Ryan did a great job of walking through this for tithing uh, in the sermon last week. Um, Jesus himself calls out those who tithe their herb gardens but neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So when we read the Old Testament law, we're supposed to learn what God has to say about justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and then apply that in our own context. That might not look specifically like making a law that American farmers have to let their fields lie fallow specifically in the seventh year. But it does mean that we have duties to the land. It means we should practice good land management and that we need to take account of the effects of our farming practices on the land. I know that this this might cut across some political assumptions. Uh, I wonder if you have caring for the earth among your political objectives. Uh, But I think it's clear from our passage that God cares for the earth. 
enough that sometimes God will actually act for the good of the earth at the expense of human beings who are overworking it and remove them from the earth so it can rest. It seems to be something God cares about, so maybe our politics should care about it as well. And here I do want to, there were a lot of uh, issues in the initial question, but I do want to address the issue of climate change directly a little bit. Now, I'm not a climate scientist. Let me just start out by saying that. And I know there's lots of controversies here, uh, especially economic and political, about climate change. I'm not in a privileged position when it comes to uh, facts about science or economics compared to any of you. Does the Bible talk about climate change? Well, not directly. Um, generally, it's agreed among uh, even skeptics that, though, that uh, the temperature of the earth has risen about one degree since 1950 and that it's caused by humans. Back when I was younger, people used to dispute that, but not so much anymore. Um, this has caused damage to coral reefs and possibly some danger to some island nations. Everything else it may cause or not cause is somewhat of a matter of debate. Uh, still debated are how much temperature will continue to grow up in the next hundred years and how devastating the effects will be, although I will say the majority of scientists are on the side of it being a more grim scenario. Again, I'm not here to tell you what you should think about the science or the economics of it. I'm no smarter at, at any of that than any random person in here. But I want to address theological principles because in my studying for this sermon, I saw a lot of bad theology out there. Let me just start by saying, addressing one good book that I enjoyed a lot, which was Francis Schaeffer, Pollution and the Death of Man. It was written quite a while ago, but it's very good on the theology of caring for the environment. But things broadly are a little more grim. So I just want to be clear here, especially with reference to that quote I shared earlier, theologically, it can happen that our actions can damage the environment. There's no guarantee in the Bible that we can act without regard for the environment and everything will just turn out fine. Also theologically, we're responsible for what happens. We need to care and figure out what the truth is and act on it. We're obligated potentially to do something about it. I know what to do is very complicated and difficult, um, but we do have duties to the earth and we also have duties to the humans who are harmed by it. Uh, after all, some of the least polluting countries would be the ones who potentially face the greatest consequences. So there's a justice issue with our fellow humans involved as well. Well, I'll leave off there and I'll simply exhort you to go work on the economics and science and politics and explore the matter further. Like I said, you know, God didn't give me any special knowledge about this. I'm just here to address what the Bible has to say. Um, but I did want to rebuke some of the false teaching, even by evangelical theologians, because I think we have to do, for, do that. Um, we have to call out the idea that we aren't responsible to care for the environment, just as we have to call out the idea that we should worship and idealize the environment. Neither view is biblical. Let me just pull this point in a slightly more practical direction, though. The Sabbath principle means that we're supposed to limit our work and our consumption of resources. And that's as a general principle, a way of resting and expressing dependence on God as a discipline of fasting from our dependence on earthly things on top of any social or environmental benefits. And I think that's remarkably simplifying in a world where it's often unclear whether our abstaining will make any difference. I wonder if you felt this way. I certainly have. 
I mean, climate policy is complicated. I don't know what exactly we're supposed to do. And in so many other areas, like highly intensively uh, mined resources for cell phones or other kinds of pollution. Um, if I don't buy things, won't other consumers still do it? If I don't profit maximize, somebody will. If other nations continue to exploit those resources, what difference does limiting our consumption make? The liberating thing, I think, is that it doesn't matter. Uh, we're supposed to limit ourselves anyway. That's just living in God's world according to the Sabbath principle. So let's not get so pulled into the complicated world of how we're going to address market forces with regulations to lower CO2 emissions. That's important. I think that we should be talking about those questions, but I think we can start somewhere simpler. Moderating our consumption of resources in our own personal lives. It might not fix the whole problem, but we're actually called to do it either way. So it's a place to start. So that's our second point. The Sabbath principle means we need to moderate our use of the earth's resources. Third point, the whole earth is included in God's redemptive plan. The whole earth is included in God's redemptive plan. This is something that sometimes gets left out of how we tell the gospel story. We sinned. Jesus died so we can be forgiven for our sins. Now he calls us to a life of mercy and holiness through repentance and faith in him. And when we die, we'll be perfectly cleansed from sin. And that's all great. But God has promised nothing less than the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. And the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus' work is just as broad as this. Colossians 1.20 says that through God's Son and the blood of his cross, God is reconciling all things to himself. All things, whether on heaven or earth. So the cross, even the cross, does not just benefit humans, but the whole creation. Earlier we mentioned Romans 8, where Paul says that the whole creation is subjected to futility and in the pains of childbirth, but he also says that it's awaiting the glorious revelation of the children of God. Paul actually says that creation will be liberated from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So when humanity is glorified, all of creation somehow is going to share in that glory. And this really actually shouldn't be a surprise coming from the Old Testament. After all, animals are named as God's covenant partners right alongside humans in passages like Genesis 9.10 and Hosea 2.20. Psalm 98 depicts the sea, the rivers, and the mountains clapping their hands and singing with joy when God comes in judgment. The book of Isaiah pictures what can only be described as radical changes to the earth's ecology associated with God's coming. Isaiah 35 pictures the desert transformed into a flowering garden. Isaiah 11.6 and 65.25 picture the wolf and the lamb making peace and lions becoming vegetarians. I think of my rabbit, Brownie, and my in-law's Yorkshire Terrier, Pickles. It would certainly take a supernatural work of God for those two to lie down together without one of them getting eaten. This seems to be the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant with animals in Hosea 2.20, where the removal of warfare in the human realm is coordinated with peace between humans and animals. I can say this as someone who at least did a bachelor's in biology. It's hard to even imagine what the ecology of our world would look like without animal predation. Maybe that might 
lead us to take these verses as symbolic, but I don't think there's any particular reason they have to be symbolic. And there's plenty of the Bible that leads us to expect that the new heavens and the new earth is really going to be beyond whatever we can imagine. There's also another question here about Genesis 1 and whether it says that all the animals were originally vegetarian and how you fit that with other passages that say, you know, God made these terrifying predatory creatures, but I'll leave that aside. I'm not actually entirely sure how to work that all out. I'm somewhat in the same place I was as a child reading dinosaur books on that one, but we'll pass by it for now. However, that might be in other areas, it's clear that the glorified creation that's coming is way more than the original. It's not just going back. The dark and the sea, representing forces of death and destruction that are limited in God's original creation, are totally gone from the new heavens and earth in Isaiah and Revelation. Likewise, I think we can at least say that the wildness and the monstrous elements of the original creation, even though they're created good and even sublimely beautiful in their own right, they're going to be tamed and subdued in God's perfected and glorified creation. According to Isaiah, this is a side effect of the knowledge and the glory of God filling the earth. I think it's important to put these themes of glorification of nature on the table because we often picture the end very differently, don't we? We think of everything being burned to ash, sort of the slate wiped clean for the complete recreation of all things. Maybe the only point of continuity is that some souls get transferred from the old world to the new one. And in that light, it might seem futile to care for the environment. After all, everything's going to be destroyed anyway, right? Isn't it kind of like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? Won't it all just get blown away? And I think there's a good reason we might think of the end that way, because the Bible sometimes does sound like that, doesn't it? Second, there's constant imagery of fires and earthquakes and like hills melting and the seas fleeing away. 2 Peter 3 compares this destruction to the great floods, only with fire instead of water. Peter says the heavens will be burned up and destroyed, and that the elements will be burned. It's a little unclear. Are the elements atomic particles? Are they stars or planets? But whatever Peter means, uh, it sounds very destructive. But I don't think we should separate these verses about the destruction of the world that now exists from the biblical verses about the joy of creation at God's coming or about his glorification along with ourselves. Like, why are the trees singing if that's the whole story? Perhaps the way to connect these is to remember that the fire in the Bible is often purifying. The fire Peter is talking about destroys unrighteousness but leaves righteousness behind. Maybe this fire is like a cosmic deep clean that gets into the cracks between every atom or quark or superimposed quantum state or however far down you want to go, but leaves the fundamental goodness of creation clean and purified. And maybe we should also remember the importance of the metaphor of resurrection, uh, how it won't be only our souls, but our bodies, the same bodies somehow, resurrected and made anew. Perhaps the whole world, though going through destruction like we go through death, is still going to be the same world but remade on the other side. In any case, I wouldn't be entirely surprised if in the new world I, I meet a tree that I, I knew here at some point. After all, they, they've got to be singing about something. They're happy for it to come. How all this works is, is a mystery. But I hope we can at least see what's wrong with saying that if it's all going to be destroyed, we shouldn't care. After all, our bodies will one day die, un unless Jesus comes back before that happens. 
So what would you think of somebody who said we don't need to care for them? Or we can use them in any way we want with the abuse of drugs, food, alcohol, or sexuality. Who cares if we're going to die anyway? I hope we'd understand that that was something very unbiblical to say. Rather, when we catch a glimpse of the beauty of God's new earth that he's making, we should be motivated to live in anticipation of it. Paul says something similar when he says in Philippians 3.14 that he pursues the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he's clear a few verses later that this glorification is literally impossible for him without a miraculous exercise of divine power. He can't make himself into what he's going to become, and yet he still strives towards it, precisely because he knows that God has called him to it. His citizenship is in heaven, and that determines how he acts on earth. Likewise, we ought to be moved by God's redemptive plan to create a new, by God's plan to create a new world free from death and destruction, for us to care for this world now the best we can. It's not like our ecological efforts can bring this global transformation about. A measure of, of humility is definitely needed here. And yet, God does call us to participate in his work of making all things new. You don't really understand how our little efforts are going to be taken up into God's plan. It's ultimately a mystery and something that we're insufficient for. But we can press on towards the sure hope that God will do what he has promised. That's what we're called to do. So where I want to leave us today is primarily with a sense of awe at the cosmic significance of the person of Jesus. Just as he was the one through whom God created the whole world to start with, in his resurrection and glorification, Jesus becomes the source of renewal for the entire world. Every creature, the bold eagles and the chickens, the cats and the mice, the dogs and the rabbits, every tree and flower and stream and mountain, every amoeba and bacteria and the little archaeans living in heat vents beneath the ocean, all of them were made by him, and they point to him, and they will glorify him. Ultimately, this is something that will happen by grace. It's not something that we can force to happen just by being so environmentally conscious. And it's also not a plan that human sin will ultimately defeat. Whatever consequences we may experience for mistreating the earth, and we may, it won't defeat God's ultimate plan. We are called to participate in this great renewal of all things, but the power by which it will happen is the power of Jesus Christ, and he's the one who will receive all the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you give us wisdom with all of the many commandments you've given us, which we obey so imperfectly, and which we don't always even know precisely what policies and tactics we should pursue, what we should do in our lives, but we know that you give wisdom to those who ask. So we pray for wisdom with this word we receive from you, and we pray that you would press into our hearts the glory of Jesus, the glory that you're taking us to, the glory where you're bringing the whole world we pray that you'd help us to press into that glory this week. In Jesus' name, amen. So now we come to this table where we have elements of creation. In a moment, I'll pray for this meal, and I actually picked an 
old prayer from the Didache, the first ever Christian liturgy. I picked the communion prayer from there because it emphasizes how the grain that's in this 